it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a special guest. We have Nick Majuli, who is the Chief Operating Officer and Data Scientist at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He also is the author of dollarsanddata.com, which is one of my favorite blogs. It's amazing. If you guys have not checked it out, you need to. After we're done with this interview, you'll understand why. He also has written a great book called Just Keep Buying that we're going to talk about today, as well as other things. So, Nick, thank you very much for taking the time to come join us today and talk to us about your book, your blog, and all the great things you got going on so we're really looking forward to our chat today yeah thanks thanks for having me on guys yeah thanks for joining us nick so can you maybe take us way back to when you first started the blog why data why dollars what really compelled you to write about that kind of stuff so my prior job i was a litigation consultant which is just a fancy way of saying we did a lot of data analysis for lawyers and basically <laughs> I just learned how to do a lot of cool data stuff and the job was great. There's nothing wrong with it. I had a nice career path. It was nice and smooth and everything. At the same time though, my heart wasn't really in it. I knew I really liked finance and personal finance and stuff. I said, Hey, why don't I take the data skills I learned here and just kind of apply them to this problem, right? I feel like there's like a lot of data that, you know, that we can look into and I can maybe do things that haven't been done before, especially with the charting, visualization, stuff like that, where I had a little bit of, of an edge. I think most people today, in the space are using like Microsoft Excel, which is great if you need to make one chart, but if you need to make like a hundred charts, it's not that great. Right. So I was like, Oh, I, I basically use a for loop, you know, and I built a lot of charts, did a lot of cool stuff, cool visualizations. I was like, okay, maybe I'll just write about this stuff. And so I kind of just started it from there. It started as a, you know, I love data and I love personal finance. And so they, that marriage there is kind of of dollars and data. Uh, the name came from of mice and men. There was a Steinbeck. I was trying to come up with all these names. I was like coming up with like money mining, mining money, all these things. This is pre Bitcoin or every before I even knew about what Bitcoin was. So I didn't know anything about that. Like, and I was like coming up with names. I was like, oh, these are all so stupid. And then when I saw the Steinbeck, I said, wait, of something. I said, oh, of dollars and data. That's like a perfect marriage. It sounds nice. It's kind of that. And I was like, okay, that's perfect. So uh, that's how it worked out. <laughs> that's awesome. That's cool. Can you get maybe take us back? I don't know if it was like doesn't have to be one of the first blog posts you ever did, but something where the data shows you something really shocking about personal finance or something that maybe people should put their mind on that you wouldn't really understand until you saw the data. 
Yeah, so I, the first blog post I ever did was actually kind of an interesting result because what I was showing was, you know, the fees and how much you have to pay attention to fees, especially over the long haul. Now, you guys have probably seen this. You've heard this analysis a hundred times. Like, oh, if, you know, if someone's charging you 2% a year versus 1% or half a percent, you know, that difference is huge over a lifetime, right? You've probably heard this before. But I think what really exemplified this was I said, I looked at the typical 2 and 20 hedge fund fee structure. And I said, it doesn't matter how much money you start with. If you're a client of this hedge fund, Within on average 20 years, that hedge fund will have more money than you. You could have a hundred million dollars. They could have zero. <laughs> and if they're just taking your fees and reinvesting it every year, within 20 years, they'd have more money than you, which is kind of shocking to think, right? But I said, okay, well, what, what happens if you did the same thing with like a Vanguard index fund or something, right? Or just a low cost index fund. We don't have to use Vanguard. It just doesn't matter. You can use State Street. You can use whatever BlackRock, all those other ones out there. You use a low cost index fund that's just charging, let's say like five bips or something, right? Five basis points or 0.5%. That would take 1500 years before they had more money than you so 20 years versus 1500 right and no matter what like if you think about fees what they are like fees are kind of like friction imagine you're a car going down like a highway fees are like friction like a kind of a slow like a brake pedal on you right and that friction you know that basically slowing you down relative to the other vehicle which is like the fun collecting the fees so at some point they're going to pass you right if you're going 99 miles an hour and i'm going 99.1 no matter how far ahead you are of me i will eventually pass you at some point right but with the hedge fund it's like you're going 99 miles an hour and they're going 500 miles an hour right they're going to pass you much more quickly because they're just taking so much in fees so that was the analogy i like to think about but i thought that was like kind of a cool interesting result and it just it means like yeah fees are important especially at the high end right the difference between like oh i'm paying you know 10 basis points or five basis points is kind of small doesn't really make that much of a difference but the difference between like two percent and you know 50 bips or 10 bips or something that's huge right those are huge differences and those really add up over time that's interesting data. So do you think that the reduction of fees to invest now with like Fidelity and Schwab, for example, making it zero, does that kind of have the same impact, do you think? Uh, I think there's different types of fees. There's like transaction fees. There's and I right. think this is, I mean, for example, transaction fees going to zero, you say that's a good thing, right? That's like less fees. Well, if you're just doing like a buy and hold portfolio, that is true. Just that's going to be better for investors. However, the counter to that is, well, with no transaction fees, that encourages people to trade as much as possible. And that may change their behavior to a point where they actually hurt themselves. It's more, it makes it worse for them just because of how they're acting. But I'm saying if you're just doing a long-term buy and hold approach, like, that lower fees are clearly better, right? Always. Question though is if you change your behavior because of those lower fees, that's where you can kind of get into trouble, right? And you can see, imagine people trading in and out and they're more likely to make mistakes. Day traders are not most, something like 95% of day traders aren't profitable over the long run. So it's very unlikely you're going to be in the 5%. And even if you are, it's going to be difficult to know if that was just luck or, you know, if you actually do have skill. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. So let's talk about the book and let's talk about savings. So I worked in the banking industry for about five years before I got into what we're doing now. And I saw firsthand how little people were actually saving by having to have customers in front of me and seeing, you know, people with literally no money in their accounts. So tell us about saving and like what the crisis is, if there is a crisis. And I guess, where do you think we can go from here? I think the thing with saving, the big issue there is, I mean, there's basically two schools of thought. First school of thought is like, oh, the reason people can't save money is because they're spending too much, right? Which I technically at some point is always true, right? If you had no spending, you could save all your money, right? But it's impossible to have no spending. We need to eat. We need to have shelter. Like you need to spend money, right? So that's the first school is like people are spending too much. The other school is people aren't making enough income, right? And if they had higher incomes, they would be able to save more, right? And that's the school of thought that I support, and that's the school of thought that the data supports, like, in a huge way. And I think, like, the strongest 
correlation out there between savings rate is your income, right? Like the people with the highest incomes have the highest savings rate. Like that's across the board. Now you can be like, well, I know a rich guy that doesn't save that much, right? He's like, he blows all his money. It's like, yeah. How many people do you know like that? Name them. Maybe you have three, four, five. Like guess how many I can name every other rich person. Like you have a handful of people that are just, that are taking their money and doing this, right? I think that's why I hate those stupid examples of celebrities that blow all their money and they use that as proof that like, oh, it's all about mindset and stuff. And don't get me wrong. Mindset matters. But like, as I said, you have like five celebrities you can name. I have every other celebrity that's rich, right? It's the clearly you're using great examples, but my sample set is much bigger than yours, right? And so I think it's a trick that the financial media plays on people. And it's like, oh, the reason you're poor is because you're spending too much. And for some people, that's true. But for most people, I just don't think it's there. And especially what you just said, Dave, about you saw these people that didn't have money in their accounts. Like, I'm, yeah, some of those could be obviously spending it, but you can see the flows, right? You can see how much money is actually coming in, right? And so even if like, okay, they come in right. every month, they have to spend a thousand on rent or whatever. It's like, where's the money coming from? Like you, you can't outmath your way out of insufficient <laughs> funds, right? You can't mindset your way out of insufficient no. funds. And that at the end of the day, that's my big argument here. And the data supports it. And I'm just tired of this cut your spending, don't get your lattes type stuff. It's just doesn't, it's not, doesn't move the needle enough. So how do they save more? So how do you go from, you know, what I saw to better situation? You have to raise your income. I mean, there's no way to, I mean, you're saying, well, that's so easy. Nick, I wish I could, I just flip my fingers and raise my income. No, it's not easy. Actually, it's much harder, but it's the only sustainable path out. And you have to either get a side job, get a second job, get a side hustle, like start building something and do it. And and you have to spend time and it's not easy, right? And it's it's better to start when you're young and do that. And I'm not trying to guilt trip people into doing that. I'm not saying you you can't never enjoy time off or not spending time to to do something. But at some point, like if you're in a tough spot financially, it's the only way out. Question is how much does that matter to you? Like, if you don't care about like having that much money, you don't care about that. That's fine. Then don't do that. But like, if you are worried about it, if it's causing you stress, if it's caught, like, it's going to be far less stressful in the long run. If you get out of that hole, than if you just sit there and say, well, I don't want to work another job. Well, I don't know what to tell you. I can't, you know, find another skill that maybe and level up your current job where you can get paid more at your current job. There's a lot of things out there. I mean, there's people, I remember seeing these Twitter threads, people just like, yeah, I learned like 10 Excel functions and now I can go in there. I'm like better than most people that know how to use Microsoft Excel. And there's jobs you can get in accounting and stuff like that that pay like, you know, 40, 50 K a year, which is not a ton of money, but compared to a minimum wage job, it's like kind of a big boost. Right. And so even if you have to start there, like I, I, you know, I feel like people can learn Excel. This is not, you know, rocket science. I think most people can learn most of these things and get a decent paying job. Right. I think it just takes time and you have to put the time in and there's no excuse for that. There's no kind of way around that. Right. It's like I wrote on the internet for three years made zero dollars right and then i'm now my blog's actually making money off advertisements and stuff like that because i said hey i can have ads now but it's one of those things where you have to do that i had to do 10 hours a week for three years for nothing right and i'm not saying you need to be doing 10 hours so you could be making far more money just even working a minimum wage job right but i'm just saying that's an example of something that i just happen to love doing just find something you love to do that you could hopefully get paid for yeah i think that's a great resource so i know that during tax season you know, for example, I know that H&R Block looks for people to help with filing taxes. Now, you don't necessarily have to be the person filing them, but there are other jobs that you can do there to help with that. So I know that, you know, I think that's a great idea that trying to help people find other things to do. To That's a big reason why I'm here, because that's what I did. I started the kind of the same idea. I started, you know, with the blog and started with a podcast, you know, while working in a restaurant business. It wasn't easy sometimes staying up until two or three in the morning to, you know, edit podcasts or write blog posts. But it was something I love to do. And, you know, here I am. So it's definitely doable. I love that idea. 
Yeah. And now with the gig economy, there's so many things, you know, popping up, things you could do on part time, do on the side. There's tons of stuff out there. And I think that's what's important is to realize like there are options out there right now. It's very difficult because obviously gas prices are going up. And the question is, are the prices of those underlying services going up to match? And hopefully they are. But that's one of those things where like you got to, you know, just spend time, you know, doing research and looking into what, what might work for you. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. So Nick, do you have a take between investing? Let's kind of stay on this person who feels like they just can't save. Do you have a take on investing versus raising your income? Should people do both? Should they focus on one versus the other? What kind of a mindset do you think needs to go there? Well, of course, I always encourage people to like learn more, learn about investing, things like that. But for someone who's like not, if you can't save money now, like the most important thing is raising your income so you can save money, right? And I think the example I give, and I, I this is in the first chapter of the book. I think it's the core piece of the book, like understanding the structure of it. And I, I create something called the save invest continuum. Everyone's on this continuum. And all you have to do is give me two numbers from your life. From those two numbers, I can then tell you where you are on the continuum and what you should be focusing on, basically. And so the first number is how much could you save in the next year, right? So I'm going to just use a simple example. Let's say you could save 500 a month over the next 12 months. That's six grand a year, right? 
Next question is, okay, how much can your investment portfolio earn you in the next year? Let's say you have, I don't know, 10 grand invested, right? And you can get, let's say, I'm going to just be conservative here and say 5% return, right? So that's 500. So the first number was 6,000. The second number is 500. Obviously, 6,000 is much bigger than 500. Therefore, you know, you need to focus on that part, the 6,000 to try and raise that, get that invested so that the other number goes up over time, right? You imagine if you had a thousand dollars, ten thousand, twenty, fifty, a hundred. As that second number gets bigger, it's gonna over time. You should see this shift to the point where your investments are earning you more than your income is providing. Now, in the example you provide, Andrew, I'm guessing this person has basically nothing invested, right? And their savings aren't high as it is. Maybe they can save a hundred bucks a month, right? In that case, the only thing they should even be spending any time on, I think, is their income, right? Because they could spend all the time in the world on investing. They say, oh, I'm gonna put this hundred dollars getting invested, and that's great. I don't think that's a bad thing to do, but it's not going to move the needle like getting a second job or something, right? Because you imagine, this was an example I gave when I was 23. I spent all this time, you know, analyzing my investments, this, that. Should I be 5% bonds, 10% bonds? I was like very neurotic, didn't know exactly what to do with my asset allocation. And I didn't think about this. I only had $1,000 invested at the time. Even a 10% return for me, that's $100, right? Like, even if I could double that, I'm like, you know, I'm going to get a 20% return. I'm so good. It's a 100 extra dollars I just earned from spending all these hours doing this. I would have been far better suited to go get a side job or go be a bartender or something and pick up those extra. In one week, I can make more than that $100, right? So for a lot of people, all that time you're spending on investing right now, it's not worth anything, especially when you control for the number of hours. You're probably getting paid 2 $3 an hour on, like, what you could actually earn. Now, obviously, if you have a hundred thousand, a million, whatever invested that then those hours can add up. But for someone that doesn't have a lot of money, it makes almost no sense to be spending that time on investing. It makes almost all the sense though, to use that time to work and earn money that then you can invest. And then in the future that, you know, it'll make more sense. It's like, where are you getting the most leverage, right? Where's your, which lever is the most powerful for you? If you have very little money invested, that lever is so small, it's useless. You need to use the lever, which is your time, which is going to be able to, you know, earn you more than your investments will. So I hope, I know that's a long rant, but I hope that kind of gives you an idea of where people should focus. Yeah, it definitely does. So I guess let's talk about debt. I bet you have some interesting thoughts on debt. I'd like to hear what you think about debt. Yeah. So I think a lot of people in the personal finance space think debt is always bad. And I think there are certain types of debt that can be bad. It depends how they're used. It depends. There's a lot of context that matters. I don't think debt is necessarily bad. I think it's how you use it. And the second most important thing is the type of debt matters. And, you know, do you actually need the debt? The people who actually use debt the best are the people that don't need it. It's very ironic. Like, for example, I can give a very extreme example here. Elon Musk and a lot of other rich people do this. It's not an Elon Musk thing. Instead of actually selling his Tesla stock and using it to fund his lifestyle, he borrows against it. And this is at a point when, you know, interest rates were lower than they are today, but they're still relatively low. So instead of having to sell his Tesla stock, which he expects to go up in price, he can just borrow against it and pay back it, you know, whatever, 2 3% interest rate, which is basically nothing, right? So... It's one of those things where like the people who benefit the most from debt are those who don't need it. The other thing to keep in mind, I think they've done tons of studies on this and mortgage debt doesn't tend to bother people psychologically as much as other kinds of debt, like financial debt through credit card or something like that, or even student loan debt. But the main thing to keep in mind there is just that like you need to know yourself and like maybe you're one of those people that don't want any debt. So you don't even want mortgage debt. So you should be a renter and that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You need to know yourself. And so that's kind of what's important. But yeah, I would just kind of look into that and, you know, figure out like know yourself and then figure out what debt might suit you and then go from there. But yeah, I, I would try to avoid credit card debt. Obviously there's cases where if you have no money and you need to use it, I recommend you, you have to do it, right? You need to do it to survive, right? There's no other choice, but yeah, just try not to get caught up with that. 
So you mentioned the psychological part of personal finance. Do you have views? I mean, being the data guy, having looked through tons of data, maybe in your own personal life or just what you've observed from talking to people who read your blog, is personal finance a psychological game? Is it a numbers game? Is it somewhere in the middle? How do you think about that? And how do you think people should frame their personal finances like that? Well, yeah, it's definitely both. Problem I have with the psychological parts of money, it's hard to prove and it's hard to test, right? Like I can't do an experiment like I could with, or I can't look at like empirical data like I can with like income versus savings rate, for example. Like I could be like, oh, people with a million dollars in income have a much higher savings rate than people with, you know, $10,000 in annual income, right? And you can see that clearly in the data, right? It's like, oh, because if you just have more money, your spending tends to go up more slowly than your income, right? So that's where the savings goes up, right? But with a mindset, it's really hard to test that, right? I can go and give people a million dollars and see how they behave and see if they save more money, right? I can't necessarily say, okay, I'm going to switch your mindset and I'm going to have these 10 people with this mindset and these 10 people with this mindset and control a mind. It's like, how do you control a mindset? Maybe, you know, a hundred years from now, we'll have something where we can actually test mindset and all sorts of stuff like that, but we can't really do that. And I don't even, A, it's, is that even ethical? And then B, is it, could we even do it like technologically, right? So because it's kind of infalsifiable, you can't prove that it's false. It's really difficult for me. So there's like a lot of big leaps that you have to make with the psychological parts of money. Of course they matter. To say they don't is foolish. Like I think we all know like you can change your mindset about something and it'll completely change your life. Like I think we know that that's true. The question is it's hard to show that it's only mindset and it's not something else. So I kind of want to keep that open to thinking about what we can prove versus what we can't prove. And that's kind of the debate here. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. For you personally, do you have things you go kind of against the data because you like the mindset or do you kind of set your mindset based on the data? Like for yourself personally, with the way you look at personal finances, where do you fit? I think like I know I have my biases, like I'm kind of biased against real estate as an asset class, not because there's anything wrong with real estate. I know a lot of people have made money in it. I know you can get rich in it. And I do own some through just real estate investment trust, which is just like public just re- companies that basically own slices of a bunch of different buildings, right? And so I just own, a, I'm just a shareholder of all those basically buildings and there's like a management company, et cetera. But I don't own personal property and I haven't because I just think I live through, I was in one of those cities that had one of the biggest housing booms and busts in the United States. I was in Riverside, California. If you guys can look that up, that area had one of the worst housing busts during 08 and both my parents lost their homes during this crisis. So I saw a lot of bad stuff happen and I'm very biased against real estate. That's an example where my psychology is overriding what I know about data where I know like, oh, of course, real estate is generally safe as a class of this and that. But I've just seen so much stuff with it that I haven't touched it yet. Now, of course, don't hold me to it 10 years from now, five years from now, I could be buying a house. Who knows? But it's one of those things where that's an example where just from a personal bias, I have another one too is sometimes you're just like convenience is more important than ever than maximizing dollars. I think an example of this is something with like rebalancing. So if you have a portfolio, I'm just going to make it very simple. 60% U.S. stock, 40% U.S. bonds. And the question is, well, how do you, should you have 60% where should you have your stocks in like your taxable account and then your bonds in your non-taxable, like your 401k or how should you like allocate those across your accounts, right? This is called asset location. Where do you put your assets? And the optimal thing to do is put all the high growth assets into your non-taxable, into your, like your 401ks, IRAs and everything because they grow very quickly. And so you want to avoid all the tax on all that growth. Generally, that's the correct solution. 
I don't do that, though. I just have all my accounts basically look like carbon copies of each other because it's easier to rebalance across the accounts, right? There's just That's just ease of use. It's easy for me. And so even though I know the optimal solution, I still decide to behave suboptimally because I'm not, I don't want to spend the time to like, okay, I have to move all this into there. And it's just not worth the headache. So I just like make them copies of each other just because it's easier. I think there's a lot to be said to having things that encourage behavior with investors and people managing their finances versus doing what scientifically is the right thing to do, but may do more damage than good if it disincentivizes people from actually doing what they're supposed to do, which is save and invest. Kind of related to that, which I think when you look at the title of your book, this idea that you know people can get really paralyzed when they see the stock market down a lot, and you know, there's fears about inflation. People think, oh, you know, there's inflation. So nobody's going to have money. So nobody's going to spend money. So stocks are going to go down. How do people get away from that kind of a mindset? One that's maybe psychologically will hurt your behavior and instead look at the optimistic part of the stock market, which is, you know, the data says over the long term, it does very well. And we know we should be investing in the stock market. How do investors make that flip? So I think, I mean, what I do is I use history and I just, that helps with that. But the other thing, it's the data is not great right now. But my counter to this is what other options do you have? This is actually my counter argument I use. Like if you look at the data after inflation goes up, after we have like a yield curve inversion, which we had, I think earlier this year or something, it's, it doesn't look good, right? Like if you look at it, stocks perform worse, right? Than they do when there's not a yield curve inversion or they perform worse when inflation's is higher, right? So we know that. I'm, I expect st- the stock market to perform worse going forward than it would in any other random 12-month period throughout history, right? I know that. The problem is every other asset class performs even worse than stocks, right? At least the, of the ones I've tested, like bonds, cash, those things that you like really like, oh, I want to hold these because you know I'm going to move and wait until it's clear, the coast is clear, then I'll jump back into stocks. Problem is if you had done that, you would have actually performed worse than if you just stayed in stocks. So it's like, we're in a bad spot, but there's not much we can do about it. So that's really like my only message I can provide to people because like, you know, even cash is getting killed. A lot of things aren't doing great right now, but that's the kind of the takeaway there. It's like, it's, we're in a, a tough spot, but there's not much we can do, unfortunately. And yeah, I wish I had a better answer, but like sometimes that's how life is and you have to accept it. Like sometimes that's what the data says. That's what the data said historically. Of course, this time could be different. We could be hitting all time highs three months from now, which would be amazing in its own way, but I don't expect that. I don't know. I obviously have no idea what's going to happen, but as so you have to keep in mind. Yeah, that's all great. Can we dive a little deeper into that? Just maybe the basics. If somebody's like, man, this finance stuff, this economic stuff, it's all confusing to me. Why would stocks be the best place to be in? And what would be your answer to that? I mean, because you're owning a portion of all of the public businesses in the United States and the earnings they're going to provide into the foreseeable future, right? So you have every person working, every public company working for you. And then if you own a diversified global index fund, you have everyone globally like working for you in some small, small, small way, right? Obviously the percentage of your ownership of their labor is very, 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 very small. But the point is it's kind of true, right? If you think about those companies are working to earn a profit and that profit is eventually either paid to shareholders through a dividend or, through a buyback or through just retained earnings that is reinvested in the business. There's different ways this is done, but basically you as the owner, you're getting a benefit from that, right? From that behavior. And so 
this is an ownership society this we live in a capitalist society you know people can debate that in its own but given given you're in a capitalist society right where you know you should own capital that's the name of the game right and just keep buying is about acquiring capital over the long term right so i'm just trying to teach people like how this actually works and what it means to own capital so why is that better generally than being a someone who's you know you're giving out money you're someone's borrowing from you why is that generally better why is it better than like buying a bond because cash tends to be inflated over time which means it the value of it to, goes down it doesn't go to zero but it just slowly slowly decreases right you know you we could back in 1910 we could have got a sandwich and a soda for a nickel right or something like that right today you need to spend like you know six seven dollars maybe it depends where you are right but that's that shows that the change in money over time so because our money supply because the value of a dollar is dropping consistently over time the only way to fight back against Against that is to invest in assets that will ideally grow over time. And that's what, you know, the stocks do, their ownership in businesses, right? So stocks aren't the only thing. You can do that with real estate. You can do it with other income producing assets, such as, you know, if you owned a royalty collection of a bunch of music that's that people listen to and that's always paying you because they're getting streams and it's being used in movies and stuff like that. There's a lot of ways to do this. I'm not I don't think that the stocks are the only game in town, but they're a very easy game. They're a game that's easy for a lot of people to understand and they historically have done well. And so that's why I recommend them. But you know, figuring out the right mix and what right what works for you, it's gonna be different for every person. Some people will be like, I don't even touch the stock market. I own a bunch of properties. And that's fine because they want to fit physically see it and touch it and and that's fine some people need that i don't personally need that like you know i think something like 99 percent of my net worth is in financial assets like i don't own any even my uh, my apartment's furnished like i don't even i the only i own is my mattress and my clothing like i literally i own nothing except financial securities because i believe in them and i believe in them for the long term and what they will produce for me so yeah that's that's my little rant on income producing assets well that's a good rant so I guess what are your thoughts on like you see a lot of stuff on social media about buying the dip and how to invest in a, in a crisis and you can argue whether we're in a crisis you know if you want to use the R word or not how do you think people should kind of you know view what's going on right now and how do they just keep buying I mean I think the key here is like we can just do a little bit of math to show like when the market drops you know it needs a bigger gain to get back to even, right? So for, let me do a very simple example. Let's say the market was valued at, let's say $100 a share, whatever. I'm just using that to make this easy. If it drops to 50, that's a 50% drop, 50% decline. But to get back to 100, to go from 50 to 100, that's a 100% gain, right? So the gain needed to get back to even is larger than the percentage drop, right? So if right now, let's say, so right now the market's down, what, 20-something percent, you're going to need like a slightly larger than 20. You know, if, if it goes down 20%, you need like a 25% gain to get back to even. So that's roughly, that means right now, if you just can estimate how long you think it's going to take the market to recover, of course, this is not easy. No one knows the future, all that disclaimers. But let's say you think, hey, two years from now, I think we'll be at a new all-time high. That means right now you're looking at roughly 25% return over the next two years. You try and annualize that. That's a little bit under 12%. It's probably like 11% a year, something like that, 11.5% maybe, right? The question I have for you is, do you want an 11.5% year return for the next two years? If you really believe it's going to hit a new all-time high within two years, and there's nothing saying it will, but if you believe that is true – then by you not buying stocks today, you're basically saying, so if you do believe it's going to take two years and you're not buying, you're saying you don't want 11.5% return, which is higher than the historical average for the record. So like, that's the way to think about it. And I think what was really cool was, I mean, not cool, but like it was interesting, the math, how it worked out during COVID, we were down 33%. 
you know, which is a 50% gain to get back to even. I asked people on Twitter, how long do you think it's going to take until we kind of recover and hit a new all-time high? And the median estimate was somewhere between two and three years. So let's just say three years to make the math a little bit easier. 50 divided by three. That's not exactly how you do the math. You have to actually compound it. But let's just, I'm going to linearly just divide just because it makes it simpler. You know, you're looking at like 16% a year. And that's way above the historical average of like 10%, right? So it's like, Everyone, even if you said three year recovery time, you should have been buying like mad because like in three years, you're like, it'll be back to even, right? I'm looking at a 16% return from here. What actually happened was within six months, it was back at a new all time high from March 2020 <laughs> to like, I think September or, or August, whenever it hit the new all time high. And that was a hundred percent, over a hundred percent annualized return over that period, right? That you got that 50% return in less than half a year, which is like one of the greatest returns like of all time that you're ever going to see one of the greatest like rallies, right? And so when you think about that, that's like we, I didn't, I obviously, I had no clue that was going to happen, but you think about the math there and think about, okay, what's happening right now? We're down 20%. Like if it takes, even if it takes five years to get back to even five years, is a long time, you're still looking at a 5% return here, which is not great. It's below average, but where else are you going to get 5% a year right now? Do you have something else? Can you name something else that can give you no bond can do that cash is losing as of right now, 9% a year. I'm not saying it's going to do that forever, but you see my point, right? Like where else are you going to get 5% a year right now? There's no place I know. So like that's why, – why wouldn't you be buying? You know, that's 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 my counter. You're like, oh, because it can go down more. Okay, then buy more. You know, <laughs> if it goes down forever, what does it matter anyways? Like if it all goes to like oh, the stock market goes to zero, we're going to be con- – <laughs> guns, canned goods, gold, whatever. Yeah. You know, different banded tribes. I mean how much do you want to make fire? Maybe buy a survival <laughs> kit. You know, I don't know. Like where – I mean you see the, the analogy. It's, like, it's really just a call option on the upside. It's just a really upside option. I can't really look at this and say like I can't think of a downside scenario except Armageddon. And in that case, it doesn't matter if I had bought or what I had done anyways, right? So – I find it funny that you you did a great example of the 2020 little mini bear market we had, mm-hmm. where literally, if you put yourself back in that time frame, it did look like the world was ending. Like I don't know how businesses were even expected to function and survive when everybody's locked up at home. And now you fast forward two years, I don't see anything nearly as scary as that on the horizon personally, and yet. You know, investors don't want to buy this dip either. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually going to be writing about this pretty soon, uh, just in a blog. Like, is this worse than 2020? And that's the question. Now, obviously, 2020 was clearly like, you know, scarier. Like, everything we thought the economy was literally shutting down, flights were stopping, oil went negative. Like, the stuff that happened was just absurd. But it made sense, though. Like, everything, I think, it was one of the most rational crashes I've ever seen. 2020 made a lot of sense to me. 2021 <laughs> made no sense at all. Like, I don't understand. 2021 was the craziest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I was around in 99, but I was nine years old, so I don't really count that. But, like, 2021 was the craziest investment year I've ever seen. 2020 was just like, oh, this made perfect sense. The world's, like, literally the economy is shutting down. Like, we should – I'm surprised we didn't go lower, honestly. I was actually surprised we didn't go lower, and we recovered as quickly as we did. So that was the kind of the shock for me in 2020. What was, was it about 2021 that really just, like, threw you off your rocker? Just the prices just got so high on just crazy things. There was like these pictures of these NFT rocks that were selling for $2.3 million, same as like a nice property. You can get like a beachfront property like in Florida or something like just and right now those things are selling for like 50K or something, maybe 80K, you know, which still is like a kind of a high for a picture. But, you know, it's still like one of those things where like 
two million dollars for a picture right not a, not a piece of art you know it's like a, a jpeg right and so i don't know it was just there was these small growth stock tech stocks that went to the moon all this just crazy stuff the gamestop thing the gamestop thing started it all that was really when it was like guys casinos open for the year and i had no idea 20, <laughs> i had no idea when we came to 2022 that was all over but i think people just woke up after that and said yeah we're not doing that again and, and prices have adjusted accordingly <laughs> it's funny you know just to kind of hit on that a little more it's funny how go living through that time period it was never necessarily clear that that was i don't want to call it like the top or a peak but that that there was something really different about that time period but that's kind of the thing about history right is when you look back you can kind of make these conclusions after the fact and so if, if we're able to make conclusions about 2020 2021 obviously you don't have a crystal ball but i'm guessing i know what the answer to this question is but if you look back at 2022, are you going to wish you bought stocks? Say we're looking, whether it's 2023 or 2026, you know, my guess is you're saying, yes, I'm going to probably wish I bought more. Yeah, I would say so, but you never know. I mean, we could have a bad decade. I will say this by 2042, I can almost guarantee you wish you had bought stocks today. <laughs> now, can I say in 2032? Highly likely, but still, who knows? I mean, we could still be below there in, you know, 10 years. It's possible. It's, it's happened before. So to say it's never happened, but by 2042, I'm very convinced that I will be like, yes, I should have been loading up more. Why didn't I, you know? But the question is, you know, how long until then? It's crazy. They have to wait 20 years. Are you kidding me? I have to live in the real time. I can't wait 20 years. Right. But that's how the game works. Right. You're trying to do this to earn some extra money. That's how it works. So yeah, that's really great wisdom there. Yeah, it is. So. If you got a friend that's kind of on the ledge, how could you talk them off the ledge to get them to start investing in the stock market today with all the craziness we've experienced over the last couple of years? How do you get them to take the step to to start? Just start putting money away and just I would say don't look at it. That's probably the best thing to do. Uh, for example, I set my sister up with her 401k and I said, you know, her name's Kelly. I said, Kelly, they're just going to take, you know, this amount of money out of your paycheck. You're not going to see it. You'll never know. And now she has over five figures and it's been a couple years just from saving. She doesn't even like, how did I get that much? I was like, that's how it worked, Kelly. You don't even look at it. We weren't <laughs> monitoring it. I just said, Hey, get, I said, how much do you think you have in there? Right. She said, I don't know, like, you know, $2,000. I'm like, no, it's this much. She was like, what? How did I was like, that's exactly how it worked. And not like the market did incredibly well. It did decently well, you know, for in 2021, but like still it's one of those things where that's what happens. Even with the current crash, she's still like done decently well just from saving a little bit every month for the last couple of years. And so it's one of those things where. If you're worried about that, I think the more, I think the more important thing for most people who are starting, yes, get started. That's important. But really, like, your true, like, financial, like, the big financial levers are going to be your income. And I, people don't talk about that enough. I'm an investing person. I know investing inside out. It's like really the thing I really care about. And I love more and really passionate about far more than the personal finance side. But I know at the end of the day, income's the real lever for most people. And it's how you get started so you can start getting into investing, right? You know, I'm going to be very honest. I was very privileged that I, you know, I went to a good university, you know, and as a result of that, I got a very high paying job. So I could save a lot pretty early. Right. And so I was I'm one of those people who I've been able to save a lot, not because I had good financial discipline or because I made a budget. No, it's just I had more income. And that's the truth. And most people 
won't talk about that. The financial media refuses to talk about it. But I will say like, hey, I was privileged because of this. And that's why I made it very easy. I've never made a budget in my life. I've never had to think about that. Obviously, I'm not out there being extravagant, you know, doing like, you know, flying first class all the time or, you know, getting bottle service every night at the club. I'm not doing anything like that or buying super fancy watches and things like that. Like I've been very, you know, mellow in my consumerism. But at the same time, like I do know that like that's what matters is like. I didn't have to create a budget. I had high income and that's, that's the important piece to remember. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. So I guess we've kind of danced around this. Can we talk about dollar cost averaging? I know this is one of Andrew's favorite subjects and you wrote this fantastic blog post recently about it. Mm-hmm. And I want to give you an opportunity to pound the table a little bit about dollar cost averaging. Cause I, I think it relates to 401ks of what you were just talking about with your sister. Yeah. So I want to say this because this is a big confusion in the community. There are two definitions for dollar cost averaging, which mean very different things. And the first one, which is the original one, I think Ben Graham called it this, called it dollar cost averaging. It's just buying over time, like as soon as you have money. Like, so you get money, you get paid in your 401k, you put, you know, obviously you take your money home, but some of that money goes into your 401k and you invest right as you get paid, right? You're buying as soon as you have the funds available. That is the first term of dollar cost averaging. That's what Just Keep Buying is about. That's the one I support. The second definition which is used is if you have a large sum of money, let's say you have, let's say, you know, you sold a business and you have $100,000 or you got an inheritance from someone, right? And you have a hundred grand and you don't want to put it all into the market right now. So you're going to slowly average into the market. That is also called dollar cost averaging. But as you can see, those are two very different things. That second thing is something that I do not support because you're slowly getting into the market. Generally, on average, the market goes up. So you're technically buying it at higher and higher prices over time. It's usually better for you just to get invested right away, right? That's what the math shows. The data shows that. I've shown that in every asset class. I go over this in the book to cut the data in a bunch of different ways, but that's basically the the main takeaway there. So the the thing I'm talking about here, the first definition of dollar cost averaging is the one I want to focus on. And I think it's incredibly important because that's how most people should invest. And it's the only way to kind of, it's a disciplined approach. It gets your behavior in line and it just works over the long term. Even you can look at snapshots of like, oh, if you had bought here and it was still down 10 years later from here, right? But is your account going to necessarily be down 10 years later? Not necessarily, because what if you're buying over time? If you put a snapshot, yes, that could be true. Let's say you bought at a hundred and then and 10 years later, it's at 95. You're like, oh, I would be down. Not necessarily. Depending on the path it took to get to 95, you could actually, your account value could actually be up because as you're adding more money to it, you could have actually earned more than what you put in. So that's what matters. It's like the path is what's important. And generally the path is upward and to the right. So that's that's the long story short because, you know, declines are quick and swift. So usually you have that quick thing happen. And then after that, they usually kind of recover in some fashion. So so I hear this almost like, to me, it's like a distortion of the idea, but you hear it in the crypto worlds where you're av- you're just averaging down. So what's the difference between averaging down in something like crypto versus dollar cost averaging in the stock market? Here's where we're getting into income producing assets versus non-income producing assets, right? Like I would argue averaging down in crypto or averaging down in buying like art or wine or something where there's no intrinsic income associated with those assets. That's only based on what other people are going to pay for it, right? And so if in the future someone is not willing to pay more for that crypto, you are buying an asset that may never uh, go up in price again, right? That's the issue. The difference is I believe generally that – 
stocks and businesses and things like that. I mean, of course, not every business is going to go up forever. No, a lot of businesses go under. In fact, most businesses will go extinct. The half-life in the in the U.S. stock market is about 10 years. Half of the companies will get acquired, merge, go to zero, bankrupt, whatever, within 10 years. That's like the half-life. There's a great book on this called Scale by Geoffrey West. I recommend it. So scale. But the key to this is if you're diversified and you own the whole pie, the winners tend to outperform the losers, and so you make money. And that's all we're doing as diversified investors, right? I'm not trying to pick which one's going to be the winner, which one's going to be the loser. That's very difficult. I just own the whole basket, and on average, as long as there's some enough winners, more winners than losers, then you make money. And that's how the, the stock market returns, you know, 8 to 10% a year. The U.S. stock market returns 8 to 10% a year. So what I would say for those people in crypto, they're averaging down. There's no guarantee that that's going to come back. Of course, there's no guarantee that the U.S. stock market is going to come back either. But, you know, the U.S. stock market has a history. Businesses have some – at least there's some fundamental, like, you know, weight to a business, to owning a business, right? You can imagine it as, like, imagine if I had a suitcase with $50,000 in it and I'm selling it to people. At some point, it should never go below $50,000 because there's something worth – like, there's something in there that has that has weight, right? At the end of the day, like – Crypto is like you're selling a suitcase and it might have 50,000. It may not. And everyone's telling you what's in the suitcase. And, and I'm not saying that it's worthless. I'm not saying that because there can be value here. The problem is that value is not going to be realized to the future. We're going to open the suitcase 20 years from now. And that's either going to be, you know, 50,000, 20,000 or a million or 10 million or well, who knows, right? And that's the issue is we don't know the value of this thing until the future. I own some crypto personally. I have a small percentage of my net worth in there because I'm hedging against this, right? I think because it's so volatile, I don't know what's going to happen. I own some of it. So in case it does really well, I make money. If it doesn't, I lose a small amount. It's not going to, it's like a paper cut, right? So that's the way I think about that. And so for someone who's very heavy into crypto right now, if you haven't lost everything already, I mean, a lot of people have lost a lot of money in this, unfortunately, like just try and think about other things. Like try and just get diversified. If you want to, if you're like, oh, I was hundred percent crypto, go to 50% crypto then like cut off some of it and put some of it into some income producing assets. Just try and do something that's going to actually, I think, build wealth over the long term. Cause I don't know with crypto, you can get fantastically rich with it or you could end up poor. And that's the thing I I'm trying to compress those incomes and get you more of an average result that will probably be better for you in the long run. As much as people want to, you know, be skeptical of things in general, at least a lot of the the companies in the stock market are forced and regulated to tell you what's in the briefcase. Mm-hmm. There could be fraud every once in a while, but it's far less uncertain versus the, I like the briefcase idea because I'm just thinking of deal or no deal. If people have ever seen that show, the, <laughs> the ladies open the briefcase and you just either you cheer a lot or you get really sad. Crypto does. I think that's a really great illustration of how crypto can be for a lot of people. You don't know what's in the briefcase. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I wanted to ask you a question. So I have a uh, future daughter-in-law that is going to graduate from college. And so a little hypothetical for you. So she's uh, 22. She's going to be a nurse. So she's going to have pretty decent income. I've been talking to her about 401ks as a way to get started. And what would you tell somebody that wants to start investing in a 401k? What direction should they go? Because depending on the company, you could have... 50 things to choose from, or you could have five and it could be overwhelming for some people. So where do they turn to learn more about their choices and, and how to get started with something like that? Yeah. So the first thing let's, there's a couple different things we can talk about how much you're actually putting in. So your contribution amount or rate, that's the first thing I would say at least to your employer match. 
if you don't have a match, that's a separate discussion and we can get into that, but let's, let's wait on that's a kind of more of a specific, what are your goals type question? Cause if there's no match, right. then it's a question of like, well, do you want to buy a house? If you want to buy a house in the next five, 10 years, you probably should be saving outside your 401k. Maybe you shouldn't be putting away in there and find a different retirement vehicle. That's the first thing. The second question is, okay, well, you're saying if there's five versus 50, the next filter I use is cost. Look at the fees, right? Because there, if there's 50, I guarantee you there's going to be some in there that are 1%, 2% annual fee, which is high. And there's, I'm hoping, there's no guarantee, there's going to be some in there with a fee of like, you know, 20, 30 basis points, 0.2%, 0.3% or lower, ideally lower, right? And if you have a good plan, you'll have ones that are low, right? So it's a question of finding where that first thing I use the cost filter just to say, okay, let's look at cost. And then within that, look at asset allocation, right? Cause I would rather you be in a, you know, less diversified something that is lower cost than something that's like far more diversified. You have to pay a lot more. Usually that's not the case. Usually if it's very diversified, it's also cheap, which is good. So I would say, yeah, get diversified. So have broad equity exposure, have some bonds, right? Think about like your, your asset allocation, your risk. That's not what's the answer. No one knows. They say 110 <laughs> minus your age. So if you're 20, you should be 90% stocks. If you're 30, you should be 80% stocks in that case. I don't know if that's right. Every person's different. So kind of feel it out, see what's going on right now. If you were investing in 2020, this person wasn't investing in 2020. If they were, this they, they kind of know their risk tolerance now because they saw the market, you know, dropping 10% in a day. So, which is kind of nice that we kind of now know how much risk tolerance we have as investors. But yeah, those are the things I would say is like, think about how much you want to put in for a second, just try to go low cost and then try to get diversified. Like those are the three kind of core tenets. I hope that kind of steers the conversation in the right way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's great advice. Great advice. So I noticed the last chapter in your book, it says the most important asset. What is the most important asset? Uh, your time. Without a doubt, your it's your time. Yeah. And so how you're using your time. And that's why even how I wrote the book was like, a, you know, where should you be focusing your time and why is that important? Right. And I think there's this, this belief that, oh, you know, there's never enough time in life and stuff like that. And I'm kind of against that. I kind of more of the Seneca. Seneca kind of changed me yeah, on the shortness of life. Uh, he has this great book. It's very good. It's like, it's not that we don't have enough time. It's just we spend so much time wasted. I even do this too. I'm, I would consider myself a very productive person. I would say I've been relatively successful in my life and I've wasted so much time, you know, my life playing video games, you know, being on social media, you know, watching TV shows, all sorts of stuff that, that don't necessarily, some of those things are good for culture, having references, having friendships and having cultural references like earlier. Today, Dave, before we started the podcast, you were talking about a Tommy Two-Tone song. And if I didn't know that, right. I wouldn't be able to connect with you over that, right? So I can build rapport right. because I have some culture. So there's not nothing. I don't think everything we do culturally is a waste of time if you're not trying to earn income and, you know, read books or something. There's no, like, you know, higher culture thing. It's all out there. But I think there are cases where, you know, you know you've, like, I just did that for nothing. I've wasted time doing things. So I think there's plenty of time out there. It's just you have to use it properly. And you have to really kind of figure out what you what you care about. And the earlier you do that that in life, the better, because obviously as you get older, it's tougher and tougher and you have less time. And so you have to make harder decisions with your time, right? So that's what, that's the most important thing. And we only have so many, right? I mean, there's debates over how much we have. There's this whole thing about like humans on average have 2 billion heartbeats. The question is like, <laughs> how do you want to spend those? Right. And so you got to think about that. Right. That's great insight. And I think that's the one resource that none of us can, we can't buy anymore. Can't get it. We're, you know, who knows how much we're going to get and we can't get more if we want it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's like one of those things where, especially I think about COVID and what, you know, how it really shaped my reshaped some of my beliefs. Like imagine being, you know, 55 or 60, you're taking you know, one of your first vacations pre-retirement, you're out, you know, in the Italian Alps or something, or you're out on vacation and this 
crazy, you know, virus breaks out and now, you know, you're obviously vaccines are now hasn't happened. And next thing you know, God forbid, you've died from it and you didn't get to spend all that money you had and all that time and all you planned for all these things didn't happen. Now, I'm not saying you should YOLO your life and spend everything tomorrow. Right. But at the same time, there's got to be some balance of like, hey, we never know what's going to happen in the future. So maybe be a little bit more open and a great book that helped me think about that. And this is I actually read this after I wrote the book. If I had read it before, I actually would have probably recommended it in there. And I hadn't just die with zero. Bill Perkins, really good book. I recommend it for people like who are starting to like think about those types of decisions, especially it'll be more useful for people who are getting older, right? Someone who's like 20 years old, that's not really as important. It can be helpful, but for someone who's older is thinking about like how you want to spend your time last half of your life, let's say versus the first half. I think Die With Zero is a great book to kind of reframe how you think about money. Cool. Well, I'm in that category as the oldest person in the room. So that, that, that would be appropriate for me. <laughs> So Nick, we really want to thank you for coming on and all these great ideas covered a lot. And I appreciated all of the data and insights you added to this conversation. The book is called Just Keep Buying Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. People should go check it out anywhere else people can find you online. Twitter, uh, my handle is at dollars and data and feel free to DM me. My DMs are open. Send me a message. I try to respond to all of them. So any questions you have, feel free to send me one. And then of uh, dollars and data.com is where you can find uh, my blog. So thank you guys. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Yeah. No, it was, it was our pleasure. We, we really enjoyed having you on here. We enjoyed the conversation today. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. Uh, you guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.